This is Over the Culture Podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like people who have me fucked up. In me, there are a lot of them. And I'm your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Black, Reaper Sutherland, Luke Fly Talker, the most interesting blurred and podcasting, the troll of trolls, the prince of petty, Steve G. It's October 2nd, as well as October 3rd, 2022. I had to finish, as well as publish, this episode on Monday again this week uh you know because of the whole two job and they're both full-time and blah, 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 blah. but man i tell you these two jobs have been kicking my ass uh you know tough times don't last tough people do and it's really this weekend i was doing double duty on both days which is not easy it's not for the faint of heart um i just know if it can be done, I will do it. And I did it, but I couldn't get this episode done before the end of Sunday, which I always abhor. I like to have my shit recorded, published, done, sealed, wrapped, all of that on Sunday because the subject matter is pertaining to that date on that Sunday. But I digress. Who cares? Who cares? Maybe there's other grab grab at things to grab at in the show that's not pertaining to the date but I digress but um speaking of my work uh, one of my job my my latest second gig with Amazon uh, at the warehouse um you know I I get along with everyone for the most part there there are a lot of children there there are a lot of fucking new millennial born in the 90s just fresh out of high school or not too far removed from high school motherfuckers that i you know i i gotta limit my time with before i start throwing fucking hard objects at the wall or them but uh you know over the week i had to report a motherfucker to hr i had to get my karen on god damn it I had to get my Karen on. And the person I had to report was my fucking manager. I, I don't know. He's a area manager. They got all these different kinds of managers and shit. I don't know. He's one of them. He's a manager. He's got some kind of fucking hierarchy above me. I just got hired, what, last month. But this motherfucker, and, I, and I'm going to name government, not the full government, but the motherfucker Caesar. Because I, I don't give a fuck. I, and I am emboldened. I am in the right for how I fucking feel about this, Caesar. You dumb son of a bitch. Don't you fucking ever do this in your fucking lifetime. Not with Stephen Garrett. Not with Steve G. Not with the Prince of Petty. Don't you ever in your fucking life do this, Caesar. So, a little about me, people. Uh, when I go to a job and I have to go to a place and do a thing, get paid for it, I like to do it to the best of my ability. With any job. If I was working McDonald's, goddammit, I'm going to try to make the best fucking fries, perfectly seasoned, always warm. But at the Amazon warehouse, I fucking put on a show. For 10 hours straight, I'm on my fucking feet. Well, not 10 hours straight. We take breaks, but I'm on my fucking feet and I'm going to work when I clock in. I don't dilly-dally. Whatever's needed to be done, I'll do it. That's the task. This is what we're doing. Okay. 
And it's pretty routine, like most warehouse jobs. After my first week or so, I I didn't need my handheld. And I kind of got the gist of like our day-to-day operations. And I'm one of the top performers, humble brag. One of the top producers. Sean Carter said, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. And God damn it, anybody say some shit about Steve G on that Amazon warehouse floor? Look at my numbers. So one particular day. I'm going to work like I do, putting in that work. And we're almost at the end of our 10 hour shift and I'm gassed. And the supervisor notices this. It's readily available on my face. I'm I'm tanked. I, I fucking drenched in sweat. My shirt's got sweat stains and it's a black shirt. You can see sweat stains in a black shirt. You know that motherfucker sweaty. And so... You know, like I said, after putting in this extraneous work, going to town for 10 hours on the fucking clock, I asked the supervisor, you mind if I, you know, take a breather? I need to sit down. You know, you know, I'm going to be back because we got work to do when I come back. She said, fine. Yeah, go take a 15. So while I'm taking my 15 after putting in just about 10 hours for this day on my ship, raggedy ass punk ass Caesar has the nerve to tell me while I'm taking a break not knowing the backstory not no 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 no. it's got nothing to do with him knowing what I did that day this motherfucker suggested I go back on the floor while I'm taking my break and you know it took everything in me people to not go full ethnic on that fucking warehouse floor and I just told him hey I'm, I'm taking a break but I really wanted to fucking just go to town on that motherfucker I feel like at this point, I'm not a person that just dilly-dally. I like to think I got that point across at that place. And and the people who work with me on a day-to-day basis, they know that. They see me. A motherfucker that's in the office talking to fucking bullshitting-ass people on the phone all fucking day throughout their shift, and then they occasionally come out to the floor... They don't know what the fuck. You know, that's not an excuse. They should know what the fuck. They should know who the top performers are. They should know who the who the bullshitters are, who the bullshitters ain't. And I am of the latter. I ain't no bullshitting ass motherfucker. Not as a worker, not as a person, not as a man. Can't do it, won't do it. Not a bullshitting ass nigga. And even though Caesar, like I said, he doesn't work with me closely as some of the other leaders, air quotes, But he has been on that floor while I'm working. And I promise you, people, uh, if you look at Stephen Garrett while he's on the clock in that Amazon warehouse floor, 11 times out of 10, he's doing a chore. He's he's doing an activity pertaining to work. I'm not on my phone. I leave my phone in my locker. They say don't have your phone out on the floor. I make that shit easy. I just won't even have it on me. Not my pocket, not my back pocket. I'm working. I'm not standing there looking at the clock. I'm working. If you look at me at six o'clock, I'm working. Where's Stephen Garrett at? It's 3.30. Oh, he's somewhere on the floor working. So with that being said, you know what? This is the way Caesar fucking addressed me. He said, hey, get out there and, and help them on the floor. And it's like, I feel like that energy, that volume should be reserved for some of the people who are bullshitting. Some of those people who are, this is their first like kind of somewhat serious job. 
Because there's some fucking bullshitting people there who get in my fucking way when I'm trying to get shit accomplished, get shit done. Because they're busy talking, playing grab ass and tickle taint, fucking shooting a bobo. Yeah. And the fact that I, I, I feel he, he threw me into that slacker bucket, I felt several kinds of ways. Uh, and one of those ways is Caesar, eat a dick. Eat a fucking dick. And I had an associate with me who saw that interaction. And she even, she even witnessed it and said, yeah, he was being extra. That was uncalled for. And I, man, like I said, I was fuming. I was fuming. I wanted to call him all kinds of bitches and niggas and hoes. I wanted to beat his ass. I don't give a fuck what kind of title you don't address me like that because I promise you I will not address anyone like that unless it's warranted because that's not me I don't go out being a jerk being a douchebag to people regardless of my fucking title it's all about respect I give respect so I expect it and don't you ever in your fucking life Caesar I don't care if this gets passed on through the grapevine whatever fuck you Caesar So yeah, that next day, I felt so strong about it. I was like, you know what? I'm not about to end this shift without saying something to the HR. And I told them everything as detailed as possible. And I ended it. I ended my conversation with HR by saying that man is to never speak to me ever again. Because I have no direct ties with him. Most of his shift, he's in the office kissing booty hole on the phone, trying to sound good, trying to practice his words and statements and things of that nature. Well, Caesar, you also need to add this practice. Stay the fuck out of Stephen Garrett's way and don't fucking talk to him. It's that simple. You need, if you need a message sent to me, relay it to another motherfucker so they can give it to me. All right. Now, more on with the show. Uh, I I really I want to get this done. Uh, So, yeah, I I hate that I spent damn near 10 minutes talking about bullshit Caesar. And by the way, the only Caesar that I fuck with is goddamn Lil Caesar, because a five dollar holla ain't never hurt no fucking body. Fuck a Caesar Milan. Fuck Caesar from the Black Ink Crew. All right. And fuck Caesar from the Amazon warehouse. Anyone who looks like Caesar. And if you fuck with that Caesar, fuck you, too. But on Friday, Freddie Gibbs, one of my favorite artists, my favorite current artist, Freddie Gibbs released his latest album, Soul Sold Separately. And God damn it, if you liked anything of Freddie Gibbs, you better like this shit too. You better listen to it. Because if you listen to it, you're going to like it. Freddie Gibbs, man. Consistent. Everything I hear. He's another one of those artists. Oh, he's on it without even listening to the fucking track. Freddie Gibbs is on it, going to my playlist. And I added every fucking track of Soul Sold Separately. Now, Soul Sold Separately is 15 tracks, 46 minutes, 13 seconds. And just the Freddie Gibbs part has me. But he's got features. He's got Kelly Price on the opening track, Couldn't Be Done. Uh, He has a track with Offset called Pain and Strife. Uh, The track with Moneybag Yo goes ham fucking sandwich called too much and right after too much there's a track called lobster omelet bomb ass track title bomb ass guest mc rick ross you went from too much with money bag yo to lobster omelet featuring rick ross that is too much there's also a feature called 
there's a track called Feel No Pain with Feature from Anderson Pack and Raekwon. Uh, and there's also Pusha T, DJ Paul, and Music Soul Child. God damn it, it's Freddie Gibbs. And there's a bonus track with Scarface called Decoded. Um, if you're not sold, uh, why don't you just move out to the mountains, far away from people, and just go uh, experience, exist with the fucking vultures, okay? Uh, now, also on Friday, Boldy James, another one of my favorite fucking artists. If his name pops up on it, yep, it's going to my playlist. Boldy James releases his latest album titled Fair Exchange, No Robbery. And uh, he does these joint ventures uh, like Boldy James with Alchemist. This time around, it's Fair Exchange, No Robbery. Boldy James with Nicholas Craven. And Nicholas Craven, I'm assuming, is the producer for all of these tracks. Um, and it's right up Boldy James' wheelhouse, man. Uh, it's only 10 tracks, 36 minutes and 23 seconds. And uh, please, man... I've talked about this artist before on this show, and I'm not going to stop. Uh, go check out that new goddamn Bodie James and Nicholas Craven. Fair exchange, no robbery. And uh, lastly, Kid Cudi released his album, Intergalactic. And I, I wanted to entertain this just to see. Get, maybe I can get an inkling, an idea as to what the fucking hoopla is all about. And I tried. I really fucking did. I made a valiant effort. I tried to put my my mind inside of a uh, 20-something young adult. That like, man, okay. I'm into this ambi. This is the new. This is the wave. This SoundCloud-ish fucking uh, Lil Pump, XXX Tentacion, Travis Scott, flowing. He's a rapper, but he's not really. And I just, I, I, I don't like it. I, I can't. I'm sorry, Cuddy, and he represents Cleveland. Uh, you know, go Ohio, uh, and I wish him all the best, man. It's where he's got legions of fans. He's got enough people in this world that believe in his his material, man. Um, Stephen Garrett is just not one of them. I just, it, it's, I don't, I don't get it. I, I just, I just don't. I'm sorry. But all things October second. In 1992, the films Glengarry, Glen Ross, The Mighty Ducks, Mr. Baseball, and Of Mice and Men premiered in theaters. In 1998, the films Ants, A Night at the Roxbury, Strangeland, and What Dreams May Come premiered. In 2001, Jermaine Dupri releases Instructions, and Ja Rule releases Pain is Love. In 2007, Boys in the Hood released the album Back Up in the Chevy. Remember Boys in the Hood? Yeah, they were a thing. Uh, Jay Holiday releases Back of My Lack. And Soldier Boy Tell em releases SoldierBoyTellEm.com. Uh, that is what started all of that gangster shit. That whole internet, YouTube, viral, all of that. Give that man his propers. Big Draco, I see you DeAndre Way. Go ahead. In 2008, Ludacris releases Theater of the Mind. In 2009, the films Capitalism, A Love Story, and Zombieland premiered in theaters. In 2012, DJ Drama releases quality street music, and Macklemore and Ryan Lewis release The Heist. 
and that year's Grammys was definitely a heist because that motherfucker shouldn't have won. I was like, who, who is this kid? Where'd he come from? He's, he's the best hip hop out. All right, whatever. In 2015, the film Martian was released in theaters, as well as Bryson Tiller releasing Trap Soul, Janet Jackson releases Unbreakable, and Seven Dust releases the album Kill the Flaw. In 2020, 21 Savage and Metro Boomin releases Savage Mode 2. And damn it, that came out not too long after I moved to Atlanta, and I fucking played that relentlessly. That was perfect timing. One of my favorite artists who happens to be based out of Atlanta, he drops that not too, like a couple weeks after I moved down here, and it just, oh, it just fit. Everything fit. It was perfect. Thank you, 21, for that memory. Thank you, Metro Boomin. But also in 2020, Bryson Tiller again releases the album Anniversary. Smoke Dizza releases Homegrown, and West Side Gun releases Who Made the Sunshine. Fucking banger. Oh, and YG releases My Life 400. But more important to me. Well, I'm not even going to say more important because I feel like it devalues some of the things I mentioned, particularly that 21 Savage But something that was really important of note in my life in 2000, the year 2000, Radiohead released their fourth studio album, Kid A. While highly anticipated in the lead up to its release, the album is met with polarized responses from fans and critics as a result of its shift from the densely layered alternative rock of its 97 predecessor, OK Computer, in favor of a electronica-tinged pop rock, post-rock. But over time, you know, everybody wants to ride the wave. People don't want to take gambles. Everybody can't be Tom York. Everybody can't be a renegade. Everybody can't be a rebel. When Radiohead first released Kid A, it was met with scrutiny. It was considered a watered down Pink Floyd dark side of the moon. And me, my I'm in my senior year of high school and I wasn't, I was ignorant of Radiohead. I knew of them. I've heard of them, but it wasn't until... They were the musical guests of that season's SNL. And one of the tracks they performed was Idiotech off of Kid A. And I remember Tom York, his performance was so unique. The the song Idiotech, it's a very trance-like house kind of song. It's definitely, rock and roll is probably the last thing that come across your mind. But Idiotech, it's got like a trance vibe. And the way he was moving, he had like these spastic movements. And it was just so unorthodox. And that was kind of like my introduction. This is uh, in the year 2000. And I was like, dude, I like that song. I like what he did with it. And I like the way he performed it. That dude is weird looking, but it's okay. Because that's kind of rock and roll. Like, you kind of ugly a little bit. But fuck it. I got some skill. I got vibes. And that day, when I saw that musical performance on Saturday Night Live, Tom York and Radiohead, they passed the vibe test. And it was from that point on, I became a Radiohead fan. Today in sports history, 
1906, Canadian world heavyweight boxing champion Tommy Burns knocks out American challenger Fireman Jim Flynn in 15 rounds to retain his title in Los Angeles, California. In 1921, New York Yankees outfielder Babe Ruth hits a then-record 59th home run in a 7-6 win over former club Boston Red Sox at Polo Grounds in New York City. In 1932, the New York Yankees win their 12th consecutive World Series game and sweep the Fall Classic for the third time. The Bronx Bombers bang out 19 hits as they rout the Chicago Cubs 13-6 at Wrigley Field. In 1938, future Baseball Hall of Fame pitcher Bob Feller strikes out record 18 Detroit Tigers. His Cleveland Indians would still lose 4-1 at Cleveland Stadium. In 1947, New York Yankees catcher Yogi Berra hits the first pinch hit home run in Baseball World Series history off Ralph Bronca in the seventh inning of a 9-8 loss to the Brooklyn Dodgers in Game 3. In 1950, Bob Shaw of the Chicago Cardinals sets an NFL record with five touchdown receptions in a 55-13 win against the Baltimore Colts. The Cardinals quarterback, Jim Hardy, tosses for six touchdown passes. In 1954, the Baseball World Series is held. The New York Giants beat Cleveland 7-4 at Cleveland Stadium to sweep the Indians 4-zip. The MVP is Giants outfielder Dusty Rhodes. Wait, what? In 1963, L.A. Dodgers Sandy Koufax strikes out World Series record 15 New York Yankees in Game 1 of the Baseball World Series at Yankee Stadium. The Dodgers win 5-2 and sweep the series 4-0. In 1966, Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher Sandy Koufax wins his 27th game of the season, 6-3 versus Philadelphia Phillies, clinching the Dodgers' third National League pennant in four years. In 1968, for the first time, two soon-to-be-named MVPs oppose each other. Cards' Bob Gibson beats Tigers' Denny McLean 4-0. In 1972, Montreal Expos pitcher Bill Stoneman has a no-hitter versus the New York Mets, 7-zip at Park Jerry. First MLB no-hitter ever pitched in Canada. In 1974, future Baseball Hall of Fame right fielder Hank Aaron hits his final home run as a member of the Atlanta Braves in a 13-0 drubbing of the Cincinnati Reds. It's Aaron's 733rd career home run on his last National League at bat. In 1980, 38-year-old Muhammad Ali comes out of two-year retirement to challenge undefeated world heavyweight champion Larry Holmes at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas. Ali is pounded unmercifully for 10 rounds before the corner throws in the towel. In 1983, the Green Bay Packers erupt for an NFL record 49 points in the first half, 35 in the second quarter, to clobber the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 55-14 at Tampa Stadium. Also in 83, wide receiver Art Monk begins an NFL streak of 183 consecutive games with the reception in Washington Redskins' 37-35 win over the LA Raiders. In 1986, Astro starter Mike Scott finishes MLB regular season with 306 strikeouts with 8 and a 2-1 win in San Francisco, third NL pitcher to reach 300 in a season. Also in 86, New York Mets Dwight Gooden becomes first pitcher to collect 200 strikeouts in each of his first three seasons when he records seven in an 8-2 win versus the Pittsburgh Pirates. 
1988, future world heavyweight boxing champion Lennox Lewis, representing Canada, wins the super heavyweight gold medal at the Seoul Olympics, beating American Riddick Bowe by second round with a TKO. In 1994, legendary Miami head coach Don Shula beat Cincinnati head coach and his son David in the first ever NFL meeting between father and son. The Dolphins beat the Bengals 23-7. In 1999, Atlanta Thrashers play their first regular season game in franchise history, a 4-1 loss to the visiting New Jersey Devils before a crowd of 18,545 at Phillips Arena. Kelly Buckberger scores the first goal in Thrashers history. Also in 99, Boston's Ray Bork becomes the highest goal-scoring defenseman in NHL history, 386th career goal in Bruins 3-1 win versus Carolina Hurricanes, moves him number one ahead of Paul Coffey. In 2001, Cubs right fielder Sammy Sosa becomes the first player in MLB history to total 60 runs in three seasons. Chicago slugger connects off of red starter Lance Davis to reach milestone in the 5-4 loss. In 2004, Jeff Kent becomes all-time home run leader for MLB second baseman when he hits two in Astros 9-3 win versus the Rockies, 302 overall home runs to break Ryan Sandberg's major league record established in 1997. In 2005, NFL plays first regular season game outside the United States when the Arizona Cardinals defeat the San Francisco 49ers 31-14 in Mexico City, Mexico. In 2009, the International Olympic Committee votes to award Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, rights to host 2016 Summer Olympics and Paralympics. And in 2016, veteran broadcaster Vince Scully calls his final LA Dodgers game in a 7-1 loss to San Francisco after a record 67 MLB seasons. And that was my half-ass sports history. Coming up, I'm going to discuss Radiohead's album Kid A, released on this day in the year 2000. We'll be black after these messages. Stop us or back us down In the back with some yak, I'ma track us down With the bowl of green steak, we would act a clown Then I had to graduate, kept my cap and gown See you wanna be MCs, turn your caps around You stop rapping, we'll never stick crack in town Got you all snooping around like gas and hounds Man, I'm doper than them L's that you pass around Put a fist in the air, cause I'm black and proud Know them laws hating on you if you black or brown Wanna get you out your car so they can pat you down Wanna self-incriminate you like Jackie Brown But I'm posted in the cut where I can't be found Blowing on some kind of grass that you can't pronounce Know them laws wanna see your brother under the ground Steve G in this Bitch, folk care about a pound. Remember this, remember this. Write it down, take a picture of this. Cause the flow's so nasty, you just can't ask for more. That's why it's called black literature. Remember this, remember this. Write it down, take a picture of this. Cause the flow's so nasty, you just can't ask for more. That's why it's called black literature. 
Flow hotter than a blowtorch. I never show remorse when I kick in the door with my cohorts. About to go horse, screaming, I don't give a fuck. Cause I send a buckshot at your Rolls Royce. I rejoice in the pain. Angels and demons, the voice the same. They wanna try to warn me about the choices I made. But I mean it when I say ain't divorcing the game. Hardcore to the brain. And you can't fade this. I done seen it all before. Every day, same shit. I can take a tame bitch. Fuck a renter asshole. Have it acting like the baddest so I got the antidote. Little pretty young thing. Suck it up as I bust a hot nut on your tongue ring. And that's ticklish. I'm twisted the sickest black licorice, bitch. Remember this, remember this. Write it down, take a picture of this. Cause the flow's so nasty, they just can't ask for more. That's why it's called black licorice. Remember this, remember this. Write it down, take a picture of this. Cause the flow's so nasty, they just can't ask for more. That's why it's called black licorice. Hopping over opposition, high stepping, rocking off the noggin. These lines from your brethren, live at 11. You try to accept them, but these lines will blow your mind. Get excedrin, this guy is excessive. Get your mind to my message, rain, sleet, and snow. I'ma still ride through this weather from July to November for the vibe in December in Ohio. We float up to the sky. Remember, keep your eyes on the ember, let you hit it again. Every time I'm in the cypher, Steve, in it to win. If my mission is mean and your vision is bad, we probably have you running to your mom, pissing your pants. Working with the baby box, you living cabbage patches. We buffing in them cats in them many savage matches. Microphone chrome like a Paul Walk grill. Smoking on a Paul Mall, watching y'all square. Remember this, remember this. Write it down, take a picture of this. Cause the flow's so nasty, they just can't ask for more. That's why it's called Black Licorice. Remember this, remember this. Write it down, take a picture of this. Cause the flow's so nasty, they just can't ask for more. That's why it's called Black Licorice. a special mention to those no longer with us. Last Wednesday, we lost American professional football player Gavin Escobar. Born Gavin Luis Escobar on February 3, 1991 in New York City, he played as tight end for five seasons in the National Football League and a season in the Alliance of American Football. He played for the Dallas Cowboys and Baltimore Ravens from 2013 to 2017 after having played college football for the San Diego State Aztecs. Escobar was married to his wife Sarah until his death. Together they had two children. He worked as a firefighter for the Long Beach Fire Department in California starting in February of 2022. Escobar died around noon on September 28, 2022 while rock climbing near Tequitz Rock in the San Bernardino National Forest. He was 31 years old. He was accompanied on the climb by Chelsea Walsh, a cinematographer who suffered the same fate. Also on Wednesday, we lost American rapper Coolio. Born artist Leon Ivey Jr. on August 1st, 1963 in Manesson, Pennsylvania, he first rose to fame as a member of the gangster rap group Dub C in the Mad Circle. And Coolio achieved mainstream success as a solo artist in the mid to late 1990s with his albums It Takes a Thief in 1994, Gangsta's Paradise in 1995, and My Soul in 1997. He is best known for his 1995 Grammy Award-winning hit single, Gangsta's Paradise, as well as other singles, Fantastic Voyage, One, Two, Three, Four, Something New, and See You When You Get There. From 1996 on, Coolio released albums independently and provided the opening track, Aw, Here It Goes, for the 1996 Nickelodeon television series, Kenan and Kel. He created the web series, Cooking with Coolio, and released a cookbook. 
While at a friend's Los Angeles house on September 28, 2022, Coolio was discovered unresponsive on a bathroom floor. He was pronounced dead by first responders. He was 59 years old at the time of his death. Police have opened an investigation to his death, though foul play is not suspected, and Coolio's manager stated he appeared to have suffered cardiac arrest. On Saturday, we lost Japanese professional wrestler, martial artist, and politician Antonio Inoki. Born Muhammad Hussein Inoki on February 20th, 1943 in Yokohama, Japan, he was also a promoter of professional wrestling and mixed martial arts. He was best known by the ring name Antonio Inoki, a homage to fellow professional wrestler Antonino Roca. Inoki was a 12-time professional wrestling world champion, notably being the first IWGP heavyweight champion and the first Asian WWF heavyweight champion, a reign not officially recognized by WWE. Inoki began his professional wrestling career in the 1960s for the Japan Pro Wrestling Alliance under the tutelage of Rika Dozan. Inoki quickly became one of the most popular stars in the history of Japanese professional wrestling. He parlayed his wrestling career into becoming one of Japan's most recognizable athletes, a reputation bolstered by his 1976 fight against world champion boxer Muhammad Ali, a fight that served as a predecessor to modern-day mixed martial arts. In 1995 with Ric Flair, Inoki headlined two shows in North Korea that drew 165,000 and 190,000 spectators, the highest attendances in professional wrestling history. Inoki wrestled his retirement match on April 4, 1998 against Don Fry and was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2010. Inoki began his promoting career in 1972 when he founded New Japan Pro Wrestling. He remained the owner until 2005 when he sold his controlling share in the promotion to the Ukes Video Game Company. In 2007, he founded the IGF, Inoki Genome Federation. In 2017, Inoki founded ISM and the following year left IGF. In 1989, while still an active wrestler, Inoki entered politics as he was elected to the Japanese House of Counselors. During his first term with the House of Counselors, Inoki successfully negotiated with Saddam Hussein for the release of Japanese hostages before the outbreak of the Gulf War. His first tenure in the House of Counselors ended in 1995, but he was re-elected in 2013. In 2019, Inoki retired from politics. On October 1st, 2022, at age 79, Inoki died from systemic transretin amyloidosis. Steve Sable was an American filmmaker. Born Stephen Douglas Sable on October 2nd, 1942 in Morristown, New Jersey, he was the president and one of the founders of NFL Films, along with his father, Ed. He was also a widely exhibited visual artist. Sable attended Colorado College where he played football as a running back and was a member of Kappa Sigma fraternity. He was the subject of a humorous article about his self-promotion exploits in the November 22, 1965 issue of Sports Illustrated. He began working at NFL Films as a cameraman alongside his father Ed Sable after graduation. He started in the filming industry when his father got the rights to the 1962 NFL Championship game played in Yankee Stadium on December 30th. This company eventually grew into NFL Films. 
with Sable serving mainly as a cameraman, editor, and writer in the 1960s and 1970s. When ESPN was founded in 1979, they soon signed NFL Films as a production company, and Sable became an on-air personality in the 1980s. He won 35 Emmy Awards and had a documentary about him air on 60 Minutes. Sable played a part in founding the NFL Network. Sable was the author of the poem The Autumn Wind, later adopted by the Oakland Raiders as an unofficial anthem. On September 18, 2012, Sable died of brain cancer in Morristown, New Jersey, 18 months after being diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor in March of 2011. He died two weeks before his 70th birthday, and a week after his father's 96th. He was honored before every NFL game in week three with a video tribute. Johnny Cochran was an American lawyer. Born Johnny Lee Cochran Jr. on October 2, 1937 in Shreveport, Louisiana, he's best known for his leadership role in the defense and criminal acquittal of O.J. Simpson for the murder of his ex-wife Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend Ron Goldman. He often defended his client with rhymes like, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Cochran represented Sean Combs, Michael Jackson, Tupac Shakur, Stanley Tukey Williams, Todd Bridges, football player Jim Brown, Snoop Dogg, former heavyweight champion Riddick Bowe, 1992 Los Angeles riot beating victim Reginald Oliver Denny, and inmate and activist Geronimo Pratt. He represented athlete Marion Jones when she faced charges of doping during her high school track career. Cochran was known for his skill in the courtroom and his prominence as an early advocate for victims of police brutality. In December of 2003, Cochran was diagnosed with a brain tumor. In April 2004, he underwent surgery, which led him to stay away from the media. Shortly thereafter, he told the New York Post that he was feeling well and was in good health. Cochran died from the brain tumor on March 29, 2005 at his home in Los Angeles. He was 67 at the time of his death. Moses Gunn was an American actor of stage and screen. Born on October 2, 1929 in St. Louis, Missouri, he was an Obie Award-winning stage player and an alumnus of the Negro Ensemble Company. His 1962 off-Broadway debut was in Jean Jeanette's The Blacks, and his Broadway debut was in A Hand is on the Gate, an evening of African-American poetry. He was nominated for the 1976 Tony Award for Best Actor in a Play for his performance in The Poison Tree, and he also played Othello on Broadway in 1970. For his screen performances, Gunn is best known for his roles as Clotho in WUSA, Bumpy Jonas in Shaft, and Joe on Little House on the Prairie. Gunn died from complications of asthma in Guilford, Connecticut on December 16, 1993 age 64. Spanky McFarlane was an American actor. Born George McFarlane on October 2, 1928 in Dallas, Texas, he's most famous for his appearances as a child in the R Gang series of short subject comedies of the 1930s and 1940s. The R Gang shorts were later syndicated to television as The Little Rascals. McFarlane was in his bedroom in Keller, Texas getting dressed on June 30, 1993 when he suddenly collapsed. Paramedics tried to revive him for approximately 30 minutes before transporting him to Baylor University Medical Center in Grapevine, Texas. He was pronounced dead within 40 minutes of being admitted at age 64. 
It was believed that McFarlane had died of a heart attack or an aneurysm. His remains were cremated shortly thereafter. Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 2000, Kid A was released. Kid A is the fourth studio album by the English rock band Radiohead, released by Parlophone. It was recorded with producer Nigel Godrich in Paris, Copenhagen, Gloucester, and their hometown of Oxford, England. Radiohead considered releasing the material as a double album, but decided it was too dense. A second album of material from the sessions, Amnesiac, was released eight months later. After the stress of promoting Radiohead's acclaimed 1997 album OK Computer, the songwriter Tom York wanted to diverge from rock music, drawing influence from electronic music, ambient music, kraut rock, jazz, and the 20th century classical music. Radiohead used instruments such as modular synthesizers, electric instruments, brass, and strings. They processed guitar sounds, incorporated samples and loops, and manipulated the recordings with software such as Pro Tools and Cubase. York wrote impersonal and abstract lyrics, cutting up phrases and assembling them at random. Kid A was widely anticipated. In a departure from industry practice, Radiohead released no singles or music videos and conducted few interviews and photo shoots. Instead, they became one of the first major acts to use the internet as a promotional tool. Kid A was made available to stream and was promoted with short animated films featuring music and artwork. Bootlegs of early performances were shared on file sharing services and the album was leaked before release. In 2000, Radiohead toured Europe in a custom built tent without corporate logos. Kid A debuted at the top of the UK albums chart and became Radiohead's first number one album on the Billboard 200 in the US where it sold more than 207,000 copies in its first week. Its departure from Radiohead's earlier sound divided fans and critics, and some dismissed it as pretentious, deliberately obscure, or derivative. However, it later attracted acclaim. At the end of the decade, Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, and The Times ranked Kid A the greatest album of the 2000s, and in 2020, Rolling Stone ranked it number 20 on its updated list of 500 greatest albums of all time. Like OK Computer, it won the Grammy Award for Best Alternative Album and was nominated for the Grammy Award for Album of the Year. It has been certified platinum in Australia, Canada, France, Japan, the US, and the UK. Kid A Amnesia, an anniversary reissue compiling Kid A and Amnesiac and previously unreleased material, was released in 2021. Following the critical and commercial success of their 1997 album, OK Computer, the members of Radiohead suffered burnout. The songwriter Tom York became ill, describing himself as a complete fucking mess, completely unhinged. He was troubled by new acts he felt were imitating Radiohead and became hostile to the music media. He told The Observer, I always used to use music as a way of moving on and dealing with things, and I sort of felt like that the thing that helped me deal with things had been sold to the highest bidder, and I was simply doing its bidding, and I couldn't handle that. York suffered from writer's block and could not finish writing songs on guitar. He became disillusioned with the mythology of rock music, feeling the genre had run its course. 
he began to listen almost exclusively to the electronic music of the artists signed to the record label Warp, such as Boards of Canada, Aphex Twin, and Autiker. York said it was refreshing because the music was all structured and had no human voices in it, but I felt just as emotional about it as I'd ever felt about guitar music. He liked the idea of his voice being used as an instrument rather than having a leading role and wanted to focus on sounds and textures instead of traditional songwriting. York bought a house in Cornwall and spent his time walking the cliffs and drawing, restricting his musical activity to playing the grand piano he had recently bought. Everything in its right place was the first song he wrote. He described himself as a shit piano player with little knowledge of electronic instruments. I remember this Tom Waits quote from years ago, that what keeps him going as a songwriter is his complete ignorance of the instruments he's using. So everything's a novelty. That's one of the reasons I wanted to get into computers and synths, because I didn't understand how the fuck they work. I had no idea what ADSR meant. The guitarist Ed O'Brien had hoped Radiohead's fourth album would comprise short, melodic guitar songs, but York said there was no chance of the album sounding like that. It completely had it with melody. I just wanted rhythm. All melodies to me were pure embarrassment. The bassist Colin Greenwood said, we felt we had to change everything. There were other guitar bands out there trying to do similar things. We had to move on. Radiohead were building their own studio in Oxfordshire, which York wanted to use as the German band Can had used their studio in Cologne, recording everything they played and then editing it down. However, the studio would not be complete until late 1999, so work on the album began in Paris in January of 99. Radiohead worked with the OK Computer producer Nigel Goodrich in No Deadline. York, who had the greatest control, was still facing writer's block. His new songs were incomplete, and some consisted of little more than sounds or rhythms. Few had clear verses or choruses. York's lack of lyrics created problems, as these had provided points of reference and inspiration for his bandmates in the past. The group struggled with York's new direction. According to Goodrich, York did not communicate much, and according to York, Goodrich didn't understand why, if we had such a strength in one thing, we would want to do something else. The lead guitarist, Johnny Greenwood, feared awful art rock nonsense just for its own sake. His brother Colin did not enjoy York's warp influences, finding them really cold. The other band members were unsure of how to contribute and considered leaving. O'Brien said, it's scary. Everyone feels insecure. I'm a guitarist and suddenly it's like, well, there are no guitars on this track or no drums. Radiohead experimented with electronic instruments, including modular synthesizers, and used software such as Pro Tools and Cubase to edit and manipulate their recordings. They found it difficult to use electronic instruments collaboratively. According to York, we had to develop ways of going off into corners and build things on whatever sequencer, synthesizer, or piece of machinery we would bring to the equation, and then integrate that into the way we would normally work. O'Brien began using sustain units, which allow guitar notes to be sustained infinitely, combined with looping and delay effects to create synthesizer-like sounds. In March, Radiohead moved to Medley Studios in Copenhagen for two weeks, which were unproductive. The sessions produced about 50 reels of tape, each containing 15 minutes of music with nothing finished. In April, Radiohead resumed recording in a mansion in Batsford Park, Gloucester. 
The lack of deadline and the number of incomplete ideas made it hard to focus, and the group held tense meetings. They agreed to disband if they could not agree on an album worth releasing. In July, O'Brien began keeping an online diary of Radiohead's progress. Radiohead moved to their new studio in Oxfordshire in September. In November, Radiohead held a live webcast from their studio, featuring a performance of new music and a DJ set. By 2000, six songs were complete. In January, at Godrich's suggestion, Radiohead split into two groups. One would generate a sound or sequence without acoustic instruments, such as guitar or drums, and the other would develop it. Though the experiment produced no finished songs, it helped convince O'Brien of the potential of electronic instruments. On April 19, 2000, York wrote on Radiohead's website that they had finished recording. Having completed over 20 songs, Radiohead considered a double album, but felt the material was too dense. Instead, they saved half the songs for their next album, Amnesiac, released the following year. York said Radiohead split the work into two albums because they cancel each other out as overall finished things. They come from two different places. He observed that deciding the track list was not just a matter of choosing the best songs, as you can put all the best songs in the world on a record and they'll ruin each other. He cited the later Beatles albums as examples of effective sequencing. How in the hell can you have three different versions of Revolution on the same record and get away with it? I thought about that sort of thing. Agreeing on the track list created arguments, and O'Brien said the band came close to breaking up. They felt like it could go either way. It could break. But we came in the next day and it was resolved. The album was mastered by Chris Blair in Abbey Road Studios, London. Kid A incorporates influences from electronic artists on Warp Records, such as 1990s IDM artists Autiker and Aphex Twin, 1970s krautrock bands such as Can, the jazz of Charles Mingus, Alice Coltrane, and Miles Davis, and abstract hip-hop from the Mo Wax label, including Black Alicious and DJ Crush. York cited Remain in Light by Talking Heads as a massive reference point. Bjork was another major influence, particularly her 1997 album Homogenic, as was the Beta Band. Radiohead attended an Underworld concert which helped renew their enthusiasm in a difficult moment. Kid A has been described as a work of electronica, experimental rock, post-rock, alternative rock, post-prog, ambient, electronic rock, art rock, and art pop. Though guitar is less prominent than on previous Radiohead albums, guitars were still used on most tracks. Tree Fingers, an instrumental ambient track, was created by digitally processing O'Brien's guitar loops. Many of York's vocals were manipulated with effects. For example, his vocals on the title track were simply spoken, then vocoded with the Andes Martinon to create the melody. York's lyrics on Kid A are less personal than on earlier albums and instead incorporate abstract and surreal themes. He cut up phrases and assembled them at random, combining cliches and banal observations. For example, Morning Bell features repeated contrasting lines such as, where'd you park the car and cut the kids in half. He cited David Byrne's approach on Remain in Light as an influence. When they made that record, they had no real songs just wrote it all as they went along. Byrne turned up with pages and pages and just picked stuff up and threw bits in all the time. And that's exactly how I approached Kid A. Radiohead used York's lyrics like pieces in a collage 
and artwork out of a lot of different little things. The lyrics are not included in the liner notes, as Radiohead felt they could not be considered independently of the music, and York did not want listeners to focus on them. York wrote everything in its right place about the depression he experienced on the OK Computer Tour, feeling he could not speak. The refrain of how to disappear completely was inspired by R.E.M. singer Michael Stipe, who advised York to relieve tour stress by repeating to himself, I'm not here, this isn't happening. The refrain of optimistic, try the best you can, the best you can is good enough, was an assurance by York's partner, Rachel Owen, when York was frustrated with the band's progress. The title, Kid A, came from a file name on one of York's sequencers. York said he liked its non-meaning, saying, if you call an album something specific, it drives the record in a certain way. Radiohead minimized their involvement in promotion for Kid A, conducting few interviews or photo shoots. They released no singles, though optimistic and promotional copies of other tracks received radio play. York said the decision not to release singles was to avoid the stress of publicity, which he had struggled with on OK Computer, rather than for artistic reasons. No advanced copies of Kid A were circulated, but it was played under controlled conditions for critics and fans. Radiohead were careful to present it as a cohesive work rather than a series of separate tracks. Rather than give EMI executives copies to consider individually, they had them listen to the album in its entirety on a bus from Hollywood to Malibu. Though Radiohead had experimented with internet promotion for OK Computer in 1997, by 2000, online music promotion was not widespread, with record labels still reliant on MTV and radio. To promote Kid A, Capital created the iBlip, a Java applet that could be embedded in fan sites. It allowed users to stream the album and included artwork, photos, and links to order Kid A on Amazon. It was used by more than 1,000 sites, and the album was streamed more than 400,000 times. Capital also streamed Kid A through Amazon, MTV.com, and Heavy.com, and ran a campaign with the peer-to-peer file-sharing service Aimster, allowing users to swap iBlips and Radiohead-branded Aimster skins. Kid A was widely anticipated. Spin described it as the most anticipated rock record since Nirvana's In Utero. According to Andrew Harrison, the editor of Q, journalists expected it to provide more of the rousing, cathartic, lots of guitar, Saturday night at Glastonbury, big future rock moments of OK Computer. Months before its release, Pat Blaschel of Melody Maker wrote, if there's one band that promises to return rock to us, it's Radiohead. After Kid A had been played for critics, many bemoaned the lack of guitar, obscured vocals, and unconventional song structures, and some called the album a commercial suicide note. The Guardian wrote of the muted electronic hums, pulses, and tones, predicting that it would confuse listeners. Jim Irvin of Mojo wrote that, upon first listen, Kid A is just awful. Too often it sounds like the fragments that they began the writing processes with. A loop, a riff, a mumbled line of text have been set in concrete and had other lesser ideas piled on top. The Guardian critic, Adam Sweeting, wrote that even listeners raised on Krautrock or Ornette Coleman will find Kid A a mystifying experience and that it pandered to the worst cliches about Radiohead's relentless miserableism. Several critics felt Kid A was pretentious or deliberately obscure. The Irish Times bemoaned the lack of conventional song structures and panned the album as deliberately abstruse, willfully esoteric, 
and wantonly unfathomable. The only thing challenging about Kid A is the real challenge to your attention span. Rolling Stone published a piece by Michael Krugman and Jason Cohen, mocking Kid A as humorless, derivative, and lacking in songs. They wrote, because it was decided that Radiohead were important and significant last time around, no one can accept the album as the crackpot art project it so obviously is. All Music gave Kid A a favorable review, but wrote that it never is as visionary or stunning as OK Computer, nor does it really repay the intensive time it demands in order for it to sink in. The Enemy review was also positive, but described some songs as meandering and anticlimactic. Spin said Kid A was not the act of career suicide or feat of self-indulgence it will be castigated as, and predicted that fans would recognize it as Radiohead's best and bravest album. Billboard described it as an ocean of unparalleled musical depth and the first truly groundbreaking album of the 21st century. Robert Criscow wrote that Kid A was an imaginative, imitative variation on a pop staple, Sadness Made Pretty. In the years following its release, Kid A attracted acclaim. In 2005, Pitchfork wrote that it had challenged and confounded Radiohead's audience and subsequently transformed into an intellectual symbol of sorts. In 2015, Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone likened Radiohead's change in style to Bob Dylan's controversial move to rock music, writing that critics now hesitated to say they had disliked it at the time. He described Kid A as the defining moment in the Radiohead legend. A year later, Billboard argued that Kid A was the first album since Bowie's Low to have moved rock and electronic music forward in such a mature fashion. In 2020, Rolling Stone ranked Kid A number 20 on its updated 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list, describing it as a new, uniquely fearless kind of rock record for a new, increasingly fearful century. It remains one of the more stunning sonic makeovers in music history. In previous versions of the list, Kid A ranked at number 67 and number 428. In 2006, Time named Kid A one of the 100 best albums, calling it the opposite of easy listening and the weirdest album to ever sell a million copies, but also a testament to just how complicated pop music can be. Happy anniversary, Kid A. Thank you, Radiohead. You rock. Birthdays for October 2nd. Turning 35 is Australian basketball player Joe Ingalls. Turning 37 is American football player Brandon Jackson. Happy 50th birthday to American basketball player Aaron McKee. Turning 52 is American actress and talk show host Kelly Ripa. Happy 66th birthday to American soul singer Freddie Jackson. Happy 71st birthday to English singer, songwriter, and actor Sting. And a happy 74th birthday to the American actor, Avery Brooks. That wraps up another Over the Culture. Thank you for listening. As always, check out my other show, Happened in the 90s, every Thursday with my buddy Matt G, Crushgasm with Kendra on Wednesdays, B3F Podcast with Joey and Steve, and Don't Worry, Be Movie with Amanda and Wade. Y'all be cool. Peace.